Get your knives ready. This is my first Predator movie. What? I am shocked. Shocked. Well, not that shocked. Cue the booing. Cue the minions booing. Feed me with your booze. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that sounds so wrong. Anyways, uh, this is my first hey, Predator. I love booze. Uh, uh, uh. Get your stinking ass mind out the gutter. What you thought that was, huh? I found the intro bits. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. <laughs> Everyone and welcome to Plot Devices. We're here. We're not doing number jokes anymore. You can think about them in your head. You're all more clever than I ever will be. I am one of your hosts, Brandon King, alongside my trusty co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you today? Hello, Plot Devices. This is Nia Guzman. Um, I took a trip over to California and I'm coming back with a surfer accent. This is what you're going to get the whole episode, okay? You like that? You like I love that? The- I love the fact that you started off with like Guy Ritchie English and then went to California as if to say, yeah, I'm getting every accent from California. The Californians. Excellent sketch on SNL. If nobody's seen that, please go and watch that. That is so amazing. Brandon, uh, it's a good Saturday. It's bright and sunny outside. I am so happy about the topics that we'll be covering today. So without further ado, let's get into it. I was going to say, if you're happy with the first topic, like, good on you, because I've definitely got some words. But let's just say the first topic is going to be a lot for us today. Perhaps maybe the biggest topic we've had since, oh, I don't know, like the AMC restructuring or from our first couple episodes, like this shook up everything. And I'm sure as many of you out there know, something's been going on with Warner Brothers. Uh, I did not get a chance to condense everything that is happening. I will leave a link to a couple of Hollywood Reporter pieces, uh, Alex Zalbin's live tweets. Uh, a lot of people out there have much more of a concrete idea about what's going on the past week than I am, but I attempted to condense this as much as I could for you, the people, and also for me because I was confused about a lot of it. So for those of you who don't know, this past April, Warner Brothers Media officially merged with Discovery and by proxy, the Discovery Plus streaming service. That will be important. We'll get back to you. They've had months of restructuring and cancellations ever since. Uh, this comes after a uh, next star media group bought the CW. Uh, noticeably CNN plus was completely canned by Warner Brothers media leading to a lot of layoffs. Uh, a lot of the uh, kids and children's programming staff were let go. A lot of restructuring was happening. And that came to a head this past week when it seemed like out of nowhere, Batgirl and Scooby-Doo Holiday Hunt were actively canceled by the company. Just they were shooting. Uh, Scooby-Doo was actually almost done. Batgirl, I believe, was almost uh, 70 to 80% done. Both films were inevitably canceled, and everyone panicked. Uh, I don't know about you, know, it was about 24 hours for me straight of just whatever the heck was going on. No one could figure it out until we got the Thursday earnings call from Warner Brothers. And that in itself is a lot to deconstruct. So what we got, uh, CEO David Zaslav essentially confirmed that both HBO Max and Discovery Plus would, as people have speculated, become merged into a single company that is set for launch, at least in the U.S. in summer 2023. Zaslav made it clear the company was sticking to theatrical releases and cost-efficient productions. We will get back to that. Pertaining to DC specifically, Zaslav made it clear that Warner Bros. Discovery has a 10-year plan in place to capitalize on some of DC's biggest names, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, as specific key IPs. He also made it clear that Black Adam and specifically Flash would be sticking to theatrical releases in their um, in their main dates. No mention of Shazam or Aquaman as far as I'm aware, but I'm almost positive those are still in the works as well. Very quietly, though, uh, right as this was happening, 
Both Joker 2 got officially announced for an October 2024 release date. We talked about that the other week with Joaquin Phoenix and Lady Gaga officially confirmed for that, so we can mention that. But also on the darker side of that, a lot of content specific to HBO Max was taken off of the service. Uh, Robert Zemeckis' The Witches movie, Charm City Kings, and American Pickle, a lot of series that were split to the site, all were just quietly taken off with no ifs, ands, or buts. Walter Hamada, he is still the current head of DC Films at the moment, though reports say he intends to step down after Black Adam's release in October. Casey Bloys remains the head of uh, HBO Max and HBO Programming. And Michael DeLuca and Pamela Adby are temporarily serving as the head of Warner Brothers after Toby Emmerich stepped down last year. Other properties that we got mentioned that will get focused include things like Game of Thrones, which of course has House of the Dragon coming out this month, Harry Potter, which is still with the Fantastic Beasts movie and other projects, as well as several Discovery brands, 90 Day Fiance, Fixer Upper, the list goes on and on. And that is just the lion's share of it all. There is a lot to go into about this. Noah, before I talk into business jargon, and again, I have no experience in business whatsoever. When Tuesday came around and you heard that Batgirl had got canceled and then the wave of speculation and news that came afterwards... If you can narrow down, what was your genuine response? Disbelief, right? This was a major industry wave of news that just set ripples across the fans, ripples across, I think, even those in the industry. Like we see um, internal emails being posted online. Like we see um, many different comments coming from left and right field. But a a big piece for me was just the this idea of restructuring or re-strategizing themselves to a point where they're going to axe a complete project that is just bonkers to me like even something like the interview that we didn't think was ever going to make it to theaters eventually we had the opportunity to see um i can't even remember if it was on the big screen or if it was on a smaller one and then um i'm thinking about all of the all of the hard work all of the like visibility that was expected um for those people behind the projects and it's it's heartbreaking like it it really is especially when one of the biggest (laughs) one of the biggest like fanboy moments i think was when michael keaton was set to reprise his role as um batman and i think that the fact that we'll just never see that i mean i don't know like it's unfortunate to me that so many of these uh delightful IPs or shows that we had on HBO Max are now just going to fade into oblivion. Like big question mark there, because what's going to happen? We know that um, the HBO like major platform, and, and this is news to me also just discovering that HBO and HBO Max are, I know that they're separate entities, but the fact that they have like separate directives entirely like we're still going to continue to get the big major shows like succession euphoria house of the dragon um i think even the righteous gems is one of those but some shows that are at risk are shows like our flag means death i believe some people are worried about harley quinn and the list goes on of just what could possibly get axed after this news i'm so shocked brandon like it, it really is so much to take in and then hearing from other voices we may speculate is this kind of just a stunt maybe it's not a stunt but is it a move to see widespread reaction you know are these actually do these series hold fan bases that will get behind the show and really put in the effort to uh show the platform that they matter i'm not sure but uh yeah major major shock it is i can't believe how you must feel in that position of the work is completed i've done the time i've put in months on this feature and now it is going nowhere i don't know if you saw uh adian bilal who are the directors behind batgirl they put out this really sweet statement of just like we put our heart and soul into this and like we love everyone who we worked with and we hope to do it again but you know this and they were also at one of their weddings i'm forgetting who but like one of them was getting married when they heard about this 
I'm thinking about some memes that I saw on Twitter and one of them was uh, Warner Brothers waking up tomorrow and it was the Red Wedding from Game of Thrones. Any, <laughs> any Game of Thrones fans, it's like, yeah, yeah, we're looking at the death of so much um, of so much creativity and so much hard work. Uh, I hope that this, I hope they do a 180 on this, maybe a 90, maybe a, a 110. I don't even know what to say. Um, but all of that, just to say that it's um, unfortunate, it's wild for the industry, but we'll see what comes of it. And, you know, I hope that industry continues to shock us, okay? Because then it gives us plot devices, something to talk about on the pod, maybe. It's new tangible gossip. Um, and the thing is, like, I don't know about you. When I initially heard that Batgirl news, I, I was with you, like, complete disbelief. And then, weirdly, I got even more mad when I heard about Scooby. Because that film, as far as everyone on that staff was concerned, it was done. The animation was done. They had, like, a couple lighting and everything. Oh, they're being ruthless about this to the point where now... We are on, you know, fourth wall, we're recording this on Saturday. We are at the point now where in five days, for my circles, HBO Max was the premier streaming service. It had everything. It had everything for families and adults and limited series and, you know, Studio Ghibli and like a great archive of classic cinema that was really getting faded away from a lot of other services. And now the narrative has shifted. I was talking about this with a couple of friends of mine. Like the narrative has shifted to the point where like HBO Max is assumed to be garbage right now. How do you go from that in five days? And I don't want to just blame Zaslav because I get it. As a business person, you're looking at that and there was a report saying that, you know, HBO Max subscribers had been down this past quarter. You know, discoveries had gone up. There's obviously the corporate synergy around there. I get that you want to make a name for yourself and streamline the brand. I really, truly don't think this is the way to do it. I think you could keep that subscriber base really stable and really committed to your service Peacemaker, man. Peacemaker. What's, what is going to come of this? The fact that Peacemaker was one of the most critically acclaimed, if not just superhero shows, just shows of this year. And it is in danger of being canceled because they want to make cost cuts. And that's before you even get into the darker aspect of it. There was a lot of speculation of just like, oh yeah, you know, physical media, that's the way to go. Cause that's the only safe route. And like, look at them. They're taking off Charm City Kings and all these series and you know, what's going to happen to all these projects. And I'm very worried about that because for a while it seemed Warner Brothers was really committed to keeping archives and keeping, you know, uh, filmmakers legacies intact and like serving the film. But again, it kind of bails credence to why when we were talking something like a year ago, when Christopher Nolan left for Universal and he was having that whole spiel like Warner Brothers doesn't trust their filmmakers. Well, you can't really deny it now. And the fact that like, I want to be on Zaslav's side. I want to be excited for whatever this 10 year plan for DC is. I want to be excited for like seeing these premier brands get the focus, but this is not the way to do it. Did you see the shift for HBO Max to not have is it same day releases for its premiere titles? Is that the original deal? But well, do you do you know about that? They already got rid of the same day release when they went into this year, but I think it was that they weren't going to have the 45-day window anymore. That's what it was. And that now it's not going to pertain to every release. It's just going to be like a, a, a pick and choose, like cherry pick what is going to apply for that rule. That was that was all about accessibility, man. And there's yeah. and, and we're not done being we're not we don't live in a world yet where who knows if we ever will, where that is um, an opportunity to like dismiss for so many people that aren't as privileged to go to the theaters or, um, yeah, I just can't believe it. Now, granted, there is a lot, a lot of fallout to be seen about this. This is just the start of it. And who knows, maybe in five years, we're saying, yeah, Zaslav completely saved Warner Brothers. But like at the moment, it's really worrisome for creators. It's worrisome for, you know, audiences. It's worrisome for just everyone who involves themselves with Warner Brothers, either as a brand or a company to develop content. And 
again, it just, it just leaves me with this pit feeling in my chest, not just for Batgirl, not just for Scooby, but for just everyone who gets involved with this. And that shouldn't be the thing for a streaming service that everyone loves. You were, you were the premier streaming service. And to me, you still are like, I'll wait until you, you actually like cut that content in half, but, um, Nothing but I think praise was belonging to that platform. And we would look at something like Paramount Plus. And in its early days, we were kind of like, oh, <laughs> look at there's like sponge camp over there. But it was it was the one that we all kind of had trust in and faith. And uh, I really hope that they turn on this. And and you know what? I'm predicting it. They will. It will. And I appreciate your optimism. I really do. Uh, I want to just end off just quickly pertaining to DC for a moment, because that's where this all got started. Um, number one. Would you want to see some brave Samaritan, if I by chance leak this Batgirl movie in whatever form it's in? And even beyond that, the bigger question, this 10-year plan that Zaslav has, if you were to predict just based on what you've heard, what would you think would be in that plan? Oh my goodness. Okay. So regarding the Batgirl thing, I will, I will eat up even if they did a table read, like somebody recorded the table reading. For totally. the movie, I would just give me that, give the actors, give the performances, like give them that much for like, imagine the following that this could have generated um, in an age where I think we have kind of expected what to get out of DC. Uh, of course, there's their handful of items that um, have surprised audiences, but, and then the second question Brandon, I'd have to sit down, draw a map, connect the yarn pieces, put pins in the wall. <laughs> I'll leave that for the businessmen, the business people. See, I'm going off of Zaslav's point, which was that he specifically said rebooting the thing, which I think tells me that for better or worse, we're probably not getting Henry Cavill back, which sucks. Um, I think I think Matt Reeves' Batman thing is going to stay where it is, at least for now, unless Zaslav has a complete change of synergy heart, which I think would be the worst possible idea. I think going back to that whole shareholding skull, you're going to see more focus on Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. I think lesser characters, I think Blue Beetle is safe for now because I think it's almost done as well, but a lot of lesser characters, quote unquote, I think are going to be not as well developed. This isn't the period where we're going to hear about a Deathstroke movie or a you know, uh, Booster Gold movie like we did five years ago. I think it's going to be very streamlined. And again, who knows? Maybe that'll be the right path. But at least for right now, I, I kind of appreciate the kind of throw it against the wall deep approach DC has been having. And this disappoints me. We'll have to just see where all of that goes. Uh, if any of you guys have comments on this, again, please you know, comment once we get these episodes out. So let us know what you think. It's a lot to decipher. And again, we will have more links to the actual business savvy stuff in the description below. So thank you all so much for bearing witness on that. Let's move over to where things are just a little bit more stable. The Avengers King Dynasty and, uh, and also Avengers Secret Wars were officially announced at this past uh, Comic-Con. And we were wondering, well, the Russo brothers came out and said they wanted to, but apparently they're not coming back according to, according to Kevin Feige. So who's going to direct these? Now we have half of that answer. As first reported on by The Hollywood Reporter, Destin Daniel Cretton will be directing Avengers The King Dynasty, still set for release in May 2025. Cretton would reunite with Marvel Studios after the success of Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, but will also be pretty busy with that film's sequel and the Wonder Man series, which is also reportedly in development. Noah, very quickly over to you. I don't think any of us really saw this coming, but at least for me, I was pretty excited about it. Did you have a similar reaction? Yes, of course. I loved Shang-Chi and the uh, Legend of the Ten Rings. And I think that bringing, bringing in somebody who has a very, at least from what we've seen, particular style in Ten Rings and applying that to the next Avengers movies only gives me the same level of hype as, you know, seeing the Winter Soldier or Civil War and knowing that the Russo brothers were going to return for, uh, the succeeding, uh, Avengers movie. So I think this is big news and I think it's great news. I cannot wait to see him take the director's chair. And I think that any fan of those production members are going to also be excited. Like this, this should really ramp up. If 
everybody knows the cast or at least, you know, half of them because we've gotten plenty of our heroes, but now we know that it's going to be taken care of with as much attention to detail as one of Marvel's successes, the Ten Ring movie. I mean, yeah, Shang-Chi himself has become kind of an, a new icon of the later series of Marvel films. Like, we know that Simi Lee is going to be in good hands. We know that character is going to be in good hands. But we also know that from that movie, you know, Destin has proven himself to really take that combination of action, character, spectacle, and heart that I think, you know, I love and you love and a lot of people love. But I think that some people feel has been missing from some of the other Marvel Phase 4 movies as of recently. And I think that film has generally been seen as the one that has maybe succeeded aside from Spider-Man. I think this is a great pick. I think Destin is an incredibly talented filmmaker. I am curious, though, uh, would you want him to stick around for Secret Wars or would you want them to get someone else akin to the Russo brothers? I love this duo feature of their director kind of treating those Avengers movies, at least the connected pieces, Infinity War and Endgame were very much two of the same movie. Um, and if the Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars have that same level of connectivity, I mean, so far from the titles and being, you know, the light comic that reader that I am, I have no idea how they're connected, if they are at all. But if they are, who wouldn't want to see that same vision executed, that same attention on both of those features if they aren't that connected if we explore different terrain and we have newly introduced characters villains i i don't think it would be a problem to hand that off to someone else a la thinking of directors thinking of ryan coogler has been mentioned ryan coogler thinking of directors. (laughs) okay (laughs) i'm not i'm not gonna think of one but uh no i think that this is uh, well deserved and if he sticks around for secret wars Still going to remain a fan. Last but not least in our topics list for today, this is the fun topic. We get to, you know, just smile and be happy about this. Uh, any of you who have been to an AMC theater in the last year, you've probably seen a very specific actress uh, on your screens talking about the intro. You know, we come to this place because, you know, it's lovely and it's fantastic and I'm misquoting it, but you know the gist of it. Nicole Kidman has been doing a great job and just reminding us all about the magic of the movies. And apparently, according to an AMC uh, shareholders call, she will remain so for another year. This is the quote from AMC CEO Adam Aron. Quote, as Nicole Kidman reminds us in AMC's now iconic and revered advertising campaign, given that Hollywood has great stories to tell, it's clear that movie fans are ever so eager to enjoy these dazzling images on AMC's solo screens. Speaking of Nicole, our ad campaign was so effective that we signed her as our spokesperson for another year. The success in the second quarter has continued to start into the third. Noah, over to you. This whole ad campaign started out as a little bit of a joke, but it's kind of become, at least in certain corners of the Internet, just a really beloved now piece of theater going... Have you kind of had that shift or did you always love it? In the beginning, I think I did kind of laugh at it because I thought, what is this? Like, why are we bringing in this top A-lister for one minute of promoting AMC? And then I was living for it. I was behind it so hard. And I was also remembering, memorizing the monologues that I could take it to my next audition. Like, it has so much heart and depth it is everything okay whoever wrote that put them in for best (laughs) original screenplay um no i think it's lovely and i think that kidman is uh a force to be reckoned with and this is uh another testament to her power this is fun news and i just wanted to cover it because this kind of headline would make me go huh can't wait to go to amc for another year like who knows maybe i'll maybe i will subscribe to their whole you know c3 movies a week for 25 bucks a month something like that right that's a great deal but first of all you should because it's a great deal um second of all nicole kidman can basically do no wrong at this point i mean she can go from destroyer to paddington to big little lies as you say and this 
I don't know if I would be so bold as to call it one of her top five performances of all time, but if you did, I would gladly shake your hand and call you amazing. Uh, this is really good news. Like it adds that sense of comfort to theater going that I think even to this day, you know, obviously vaccines are more present. Obviously theaters are a lot more safer now, but there is still a lot of hesitancy to going back to continuous theater going experiences. And I think to have that consistent warmth of a Nicole Kidman, and I was like you, like I initially saw it and I kind of rolled my eyes, you know, this big star is telling us what to do in the theater, yada, yada, yada. But it's become part of it. And, you know, the dialogue just gets more endearing the more times I hear it. And, you know, it, it's a good kind of sitting into your comfort zone space. So, like, good for her. I hope. And again, I hope whatever the marketing version of the Oscars is, that gets that version of it. I remembered my note. It was my favorite line out of that is it goes something like this. Somehow heartbreak feels right in a place like this. <laughs> because yep. I think that would maybe go, what are they like? What are you saying? And I was still eating it up. It was great. That is going to wrap our news portion for today's episode. We are moving on now to our quick hit. And for those of you who are listening, if you're watching our quick hit, because we are recording them now, a uh, short note is make sure you're following us on our socials. We are posting our quick hits now as soon as Noah gets to editing them, talking about myself in third person. But quick hit is a portion of our show where Brandon and I take one-ish minute to cover an additional news topic that we could not fit into um, our primary news section for today's episode. So without further ado... I will move forward with my quick hit beginning in three, two, one. Hey, all, you know, I mentioned Drag Race here and there on the pod. Well, here it is again, and this time less fangirling for me, but actual news uh, info is all pulled from Justin Kroll's article on Deadline. So the news is Shay Coulee, Drag Race legend. She appeared on three seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race, as well as receiving the crown in one of those. I won't spoil it, but hey, go check it out if you haven't already. Paramount Plus, baby. And she is a force to be reckoned with, a multifaceted artist, designer, runway like goddess like she is it she's everything she is cast in the mcu i'm so ready to see shea coulee join the mcu in this series it is going to be iron heart which is going to be premiering in the fall of 2023 so we are going to be waiting for her for some time however uh the iron heart series is exploring riri williams who builds a iron suit in the same fashion as iron man so cannot wait to see her and her first appearance is going to be for based on what i read in wakanda forever the series is going to start dominique thorne in the leading role as well as anthony ramos being attached but not many other details are known all i wanted to share is that shea coulee the moment is going to come where we have a drag race legend joining the MCU. And I hope to see more and more casting announcements for other legends off of the show, but uh, that's the news. And I'm kind of close to the time. Brandon, we are moving over to you. Can you share yours? If I can get my time already, I never prepared. All right. In three, two, so CW fans, I am coming to you once again, because I use this platform to exclusively talk about our stuff whenever I can. Uh, the flash is ending. The Arrowverse, as we know it, is coming to an end. Uh, Deadline first uh, first reported the news earlier this week that season nine will officially be its last. By the time that show ends, it means we'll have been the longest running live action DC show after Smallville, which ran from 2001-2010 on the network. The season will follow in its predecessor Arrow's footsteps with a shortened 13-episode season that by the time it ends will just be actually on the cusp of Andy Muschietti's solo Flash film, assuming it doesn't get any more delays. We'll see. Uh, No premiere date has been set. We did get this statement from star grant gustin saying quotes i'm really excited to get to do this one more time finish on our terms i'm really going to enjoy every minute of it as much as i can i couldn't be more honored and associated with this character probably for the rest of my life and career it's a seriously truly honor and time 
That is today's quick hit episode 32, baby. Like I said, follow us on our socials. Make sure you are listening and reposting our quick hits so that we can get a lot more following, especially on TikTok. Brandon, let us begin. Honestly, at the top of the episode, when I said I was super happy about today, I'm sorry, that was not about the Warner Brothers news. <laughs> that, that was a Debbie Downer. However, capitalism. I, I was so happy about our movie portion of today's episode. I know that you have your solo review. We are covering three features today. They will be Netflix's TMNT. The full title is Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie on Netflix. Then we're moving on into Hulu territory covering Prey coming from the Predator franchise. So cannot wait to dive into that. And we'll be wrapping the discussion with Brad Pitt and others in Bullet Train. I cannot wait, wait, wait to dive into that last and final coverage. So without further ado, that seems to be my line today. Brandon, take it away with TMNT. It's turtle time. Uh, I don't think that's... Uh, oh, I like that. I like that a lot, actually. I, I don't follow much Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, I, I only wanted to cover this because I talked to you about the first trailer premiering, and I was like, Noah, this trailer looks really good. I kind of want to talk about it. So now we're going to talk about it. We're only science. Uh, Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie. This comes to us from Ant Ward and Andy Soriano, who co-developed and co-show ran the 2018 reboot series. I will admit, I did not watch a lot of it, but I, from what I saw, it sounded really interesting. And I was really, again, intrigued to see what they could do with a movie format that is allegedly going to be the kind of closing movie for this series. It was canceled after two series on Nickelodeon. This is the, I guess, conclusion of the movie. We follow... Who else? The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Here you have Leo, voiced by Ben Schwartz. You have Raph, voiced by Omar Benson Miller, who, fun fact, is the first black actor to play Raph, which is super cool. You have uh, Brandon Michael Smith playing Mikey, and you have Josh Brenner as Donnie. Uh, they're four brothers. They're ninjas. They're magic in this case. I did not, apparently this is the thing from the series where their weapons have this kind of like mystic power to them. So Leo can create portals. Raph can become kind of this like Miss Marvel, like light, hard light construct kind of thing. That's a whole thing where they get different powers. Anyways. Movie starts off very dark. Uh, we start off in a post-apocalyptic future with a young Casey Jones, who in this movie is voiced by Haley Joel Osment. In this post-apocalyptic future, he is the apprentice uh, under the mentorship of Leo, who has become a great ninja master. Basically, all the other turtles are dead, and Leo sends Casey back in time to say, find the key, get the Krang. For any of you who are fans of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, you know the Krang or the big, like, rain, gooey, you know, enemy things that are aliens from different dimension. I don't know a lot about them, but, you know, they're big enemies. Anyway, Casey goes back in time, runs into the Turtles, along with Splinter, voiced by Eric Bauza, and April O'Neil, voiced by Kat Graham, who is great in this, and we will get to it. Uh, and basically, it's just a big mashup of uh, Casey and the Turtles and their allies trying to defeat the Krang, who are being released by the Foot Clan. Spoiler, they do get released, and it's a whole thing of just trying to protect New York from this massive alien invasion and seeing what the brothers can accomplish in that time as well. Again, I wanted to go into this because I thought the animation just looked super cool. And anytime, especially nowadays, after we talked a couple weeks ago about Netflix's, let's just call it an animation debacle, eliminating a lot of their staff. And I got to tell you, even as someone who didn't watch the series, this was a ton of fun. I had a lot of fun with this movie. And I think it boils down to a couple things. Number one, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle novice. So come at me. I deserve all of it. I remember Leo and Raph being very different characters than presented in this show, but I like the way that they turn them on their head. Like Leo is the leader. He knows he's the leader and that goes to his head. And Raph is still, you know, overly assertive and tough, but they have more like big brother protective kind of way, both of which come back to make them really flawed characters. And that's not to say that Donnie and Mikey don't get development. They do like they're super fun. And, you know, Donnie's still tech bro and Mikey's, not as cowabunga heavy. He's much more like a kind of young 
freelance artist type. Just as brothers, I found them really compelling characters. The actual story itself, as I said, gets weirdly dark. Like, they don't show blood, but they insinuate it a lot with, like, really violent stuff and, like, body horror type things with the crane. And it's this really kind of twisty thing that is only accompanied by the animation. And, oh, my God, this movie looks great. Uh, I love just the action sequences, the fluidity of it all. It's very inspired by anime. You can tell by just either the sword fights or how the crane move. And Casey, who is actually kind of a really fun take on the character. He's not, like, the big, gruff loader that we see in a lot of the other properties. He's very you know, young and naive and kind of believes in his ideology of the turtles. Uh, again, for me, just it's really fun. It's hilarious, I forgot to mention. And I think it's a really well worth your time. I was checking this out more so just while I was doing, you know, other things around the house. And I knew that I couldn't speak to it as well as my friend, Mr. King here. But I did want to mention, Brandon, that I found this to be, from what I saw, um, a good kind of chaotic piece because I'm, I'm looking at and hearing discussions about time travel and how it will affect like the current plan that they're trying to execute. And I know it's an animation, but there's like huge set pieces, if I had to describe it, of what they're actually um, taking on. And this is like 27 minutes into the movie i had to like check the time stamp because i'm like what what's going on here and how like is this the finale because it it has that kind of intensity very early on and that mystical element to their weapons is only like exciting me further i like when there's just some kind of fantastical you know piece to that web that weapon and they're so iconic like the turtles are iconic for many reasons but their weapons especially so i can't wait to find out what those other weapons are able to do I will say that is one of my small critiques of the movie, which is that I wish kind of the mysticism, when you get into the actual turtles in present day, that mysticism is still there. They're chasing down a bad guy who is voiced by our friend Reese Darby from our flag means death, actually. Um, and it's great and it's super fun, but like they get to show off their powers and later in the movie, let's just say it's not as prevalent. And I wish they had gone into detail about why they weren't allowed to do those things. It, it's a bit of a plot contrivance. I know why they did it. It's much more like we want to go back to kind of the bare bones of, you know, who the turtles are, but Again, it's such a distinct element of what the show is and what the movie is presenting. I wish there was more of it. Overall rated? So the thing is, there's a higher rated movie later, and I don't want to like match it because I want to be like, these are equal. Um, I'm in a happy mood. Eight and a half. Uh, the Warner Brothers thing depressed me. I should give high ratings. This is really fun. And again, even if you aren't a fan of the 2018 series, I was coming in basically blind. If you are at all familiar with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, this is super fun. It's hilarious. It's, I think, exactly the kind of stakes that if any of you were disappointed with the live action films and wanted like a movie that can actually get to like the meat and core of the characters that also in, that embraces the darkness and embraces the kind of weird creativity that Eastman and Laird created with those comics, this is that. It just looks amazing. And it, you know, it's very much for kids at times, but in all the right ways, it's under 90 minutes. I would highly recommend. We will transition now to a land before time because we are going into Hulu's Prey. This film premiered on August 5th. It is an exclusive for Hulu, so you will not be able to check this out in theaters. Um, I will give you as much of a description as I can remember from when I checked it out this morning. Uh, we are looking at a indigenous uh, community that is primarily, you know, our protagonist is a member named Naru. And she is played by Amber Midthunder. She has a brother who is the war chief in their community, in their tribe. And they are faced with the hunt. You know, the idea of the hunt is very focused in this movie. And she wants to go out and really match her, her brothers, her, her 
the hunters in her space so that she can kind of be a force to be reckoned with as well. And the movie starts off with her noticing a Thunderbird in the sky. However, you know, knowing the franchise, we all know that that is the Predator ship landing and the whole film just kind of takes off from there. It's this uh, cat and mouse kind of game. It's her adapting herself to her surroundings as a hunter as she is pursuing this thing or at least trying to track it. She is a, a very uh, well tracker, as mentioned by um, the people around her. It has its own depictions of expectations for like female versus males and hunters and um, what she is capable of. And it really proves a point that this is a different movie from the Predator franchise. It's on its own shelf. And I'm such a fan. Like Brandon and I are going to get into the meat of it, but uh, all you need to know is they are out on a hunt. And while they come to and from where they live, it's the question of, is there something lingering out there? And what can I do to find it? Because it's not like it's taking off uh, the members around her. It's mostly just curiosity. And I think eventually she realizes that this is a threatening force and she needs to be the one to take it out. Uh, it has a couple surprises in there, a handful of uh, very uh, well-executed action sequences. And I can shift now over to Brandon and ask him, Brandon, are you a fan of the Predator franchise? Even, you know, I'm going to throw AVP in there because I can that part of it and uh, you know what's your experience do you respect the predators do you think that they're uh fearsome ferocious or do you think they're kind of laughable and your knives ready this is my first predator movie what cue the booing cue the minions booing feed me with your booze <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that sounds so wrong anyways uh this is my first hey, predator i love booze uh 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 you may stop listening at this point. I this found point. the intro bit. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. <laughs> anyways, this was my first exposure to Predator, which again, for a number of years, I ex- I revered it much less because there's two of them in the same vein as Alien, where it was just like big scary monster movie. Brandon will get nightmares from. Uh, but as many people described to me, it's like no, Predator is actually this really kind of kick-ass, you know, alien sci-fi action franchise with like a lot more depth to it, and you know, a lot of really interesting mythology. It's like great but I didn't have time to see them before I saw Prey. So I really only got to check this out. And question to you, did you watch the English or the Comanche dub that the cast did? Oh my goodness. I should have listened to the Comanche dub. I was not aware. Okay. So I did watch the Comanche dub. And actually for any of you who are interested in that, you can't like cook on the subtitles. You have to actually go down to settings and there's an actual video for the Comanche dub, which is a little stupid, but I'm glad it's there. Um, Prey kind of rules kind of love this it uh, rules this is this is oh you have the mic i'll let you speak but no, Brandon, please, we are go- i'm going to praise this film because it pulled off action bits that i hadn't seen before that excited me for the franchise again it didn't give us too much predator to a point where i was like okay we get it like the same things are scary you know we have um the invisibility cloak we have the you know, the three dotted laser that's going to be lining up on somebody's forehead like yes those moments are in there but they aren't I guess, pushed in front of your face, expecting the same result as I've experienced in, uh, I actually recently watched uh, Predator. So first movie. I, I have praise for Predators, I think it's called, starring Adrian Brody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Mahershala Ali, actually. And Mahershala Ali um, from John Wick and The Matrix. Uh, the, not Keanu Reeves. <laughs> not Keanu Reeves, uh, Morpheus. Oh, Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne is also in there. That movie is tougher grace. Like, I I do have praise for Predators. Then they came out with The Predator. 
And that just went out the window. I did. I was not a fan. I didn't think that it was done well. I thought that it was kind I thought that movie was laughable. Like that to me was a comedy. Um, but this movie knows its tricks and it knows how to pull them off, even with its time period, like having a surprise in there about, um, Ooh, I just, I, I want to say it, but like, I don't want to because I want y'all to watch it. Uh, but there's excellent weaponry with like tomahawks. They've got arrows. There's a loving, a loving dog and owner relationship Sorry. That, is, that is explored in this movie. And if you're a dog fan and if you like movies that have that relationship, you will be excited to watch this movie. I, I promise you. I encourage any of you to read. There's an interview, I forget where, but with Amber Midthunder and Dan Trachtenberg, the director, who they're talking about trying to wrangle that dog whose real name is Coco. And it's just lovely and chaotic and translates throughout the entire movie. Uh, first of all, Sorry is an amazing supporting character. Like most of this movie, I think, is either Amber Midthunder is Naru, it's Sorry the dog, or it's the predator. And Amber, first of all, is a GD superstar. I think the reason Naru really works as our point of view character is because, yes, she's badass and she's, you know, uh, she's quick to learn and she's got all these skills, but she's also kind of flawed, like not of her own. Like she's in an environment where that is very much how she's raised, but she has this innate sense of pride to her. We get the sense of like, is she doing this for her and to save her people or like to get her like rising up as a chief? As you mentioned, there's a degree of sexism to this tribe and there's a thing of like women are only gatherers. And is there that thing of we have to go back and forth of like, are we rooting for her because of her goals or to save herself and her people? And it's this really great balancing act between this character that just Amber Midthunder knows how to nail so well. Beyond that, she's a total badass and nails all the action sequences and like her relationship with the dog is great. And and actually the, the, the parallel between herself and the actual predator who does get revealed later on in the movie, it reaches that primal sense in the back of you of like man versus nature and survival at any cost. And as you get more into the movie, it just feels so visceral and great. As I'm experiencing this movie and I'm thinking back on it, I am just reminded of AVP. Uh, I'm a big fan of the first Alien versus Predator. I, I actually like, I would put that up there. Um, not in other categories, but for the, <laughs> for the Predator category. And I just wanted to say that the environment in that movie is interesting enough to where every scene just kind of feels, it feels new and it's a maze. So you're really, um, invested into the story. Uh, and then the characters kind of come sidebar uh, or secondary, but here the environment, like they're in, they're in the countryside, they're near forestry. Um, there's a river, like they're not entirely compelling. However, I think they did a great job of not overkilling the script and like giving um, Amber too much to work with. Like the premise is very simple. She is a woman who wants to uh, have pride in herself as a hunter and also be respected as that kind of hunter. And what happens when they have this new predator out there in the wilderness that only really she believes in and only she feels she can take on that's it. And the, the script doesn't want you to busy yourself with anything more. And I'm so thankful for that. Like this movie is simple and it's executed so, so well. I think it's under 90 minutes, isn't it? Uh, it's about, it's about hour 37, I believe. Okay. It's a hundred minutes. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. fast and furious and you're absolutely right. Like every line of dialogue, even when like we get some side characters introduced, like everything feels pertaining to Naru's journey and that sense of place and focus and visceral just survivalism of the uh, of the story i do want to quickly mention uh dakota beavers as her brother tabe who is also really good her brother was so great i was i was convinced that he like he he was a force to be reckoned with as the war chief and he proved it absolutely like there's that great scene uh this isn't a spoiler it's like early on when they're shooting down a hawk and like 
you know, he's like, this is how you do it. And she's like, well, yeah, now you have to go and get it. And there's that great balancing between like, yeah, these are imperfect characters that are just out to, you know, help the people they love and care about. And that ties in beautifully with the script because what happens when she equips herself with a tomahawk, she ties rope to it so that she yes. doesn't have to go chasing after it every single time. And that ends up being my favorite weapon in the movie. I do also want to quickly point out a uh, Dane DeLigro. I have not heard his name pronounced, so forgive me, who actually plays the predator in suit. Some great like physical acting in there. I love when they actually, he's masked for most of the time, but like as you, as you get through the movie, you get to see more of the visuals of the Predator, and it looks great between just the face and the kind of, like, uh, the trophies that he keeps, and there's a great scene where he, um, where he takes down a wolf, and I thought that was kind of one of those small little action bits that I was really impressed with. All in credit to, oh god, um, Jeff Cutter, who worked with Dan Drachtenberg on 10 Cloverfield Lane, actually, who shoots all of this, and I'm convinced that Dan Drachtenberg, even though this and 10 Cloverfield are his only two movies, and they're both based on pre-existing materials as kind of like new takes on them. I'm convinced he has a sense of place and scale that very few other directors have because 10 Cloverfield Lane, if you remember, was so compact in that one house, but it felt so huge in the midst of our characters. And this is kind of the opposite. It's this huge landscape, the Great Plains, but it feels so intimate when, you know, Naru and Sari are traveling at all. It feels like every inch is kind of memorized by their tribe and you just feel like you're a part of that world. Uh, for the praise for Trattenberg includes uh, his directing of Black Mirror on the episode Playtest. That is the one where it, one man experiences like a living nightmare inside this house because of the test that he's undergoing. Uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, as you mentioned, is wonderful. Uh, I remember seeing that mentioned on the promotional images and I didn't know what to think about it because I knew that I liked 10... I knew that I... Uh, like revered 10 Cloverfield Lane, but I knew that the Predator franchise was like very touchy for me because of we just got the the Predator movie and that to me was just sour. This puts a new, it gives you a new taste and I, I definitely recommend it. It's on Hulu. Without quickly giving it away because at the very, very end, there's like a little tease for what could be coming next. Would you want to see them tackle what comes next if that's what they do? I'm a little scared, Brandon. Be very vague, but help me get there. What did you see? The cave painting and during the credits. <gasps> oh my gosh, I didn't see it. Oh, you did? Okay, never mind. We're just okay, gonna go right we're, we're, Yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have a, a post discussion. But hey, if you're watching it, stay through those credits and look at the cave paintings because Mr. King here says that there's something to look at. It is first of all, the actual credits are awesome because like the music and the actual cave paintings are great. But at the very end, there's like a tease what come next, and I'm like, that could be cool. Uh moving on to ratings. Noah out of ten. I felt like I was watching a major blockbuster in my home. I think cinematography was there. Acting or performances are on par with the rest of production. And I really didn't bat an eye at the CGI. I thought that that was nothing to be distracted by. I'm walking away thoroughly impressed. And this is a nine out of 10 for me, genuinely. I didn't mention that, but I, I don't know what the budget is. I can't imagine it's over 80 million, but it looks great for what it is. Um, that being said, yeah, this is a nine. This is one of the best movies of the year. It's probably one of the best action movies of the 2020s so far. It, it is so streamlined and just of its own head. We'll get to a movie that isn't like that. But I think in this case, I think it knows exactly what it's trying to be. It is so viscerally powerful and badass. Amber Midthunder is an absolute star. She carries so much of the movie on her shoulders. But the way it actually respects Comanche culture and like embraces the nuances and little things about whether it's a tribe or like Amber's personality. Sorry is a great animal companion. I only hope the best for that dog. But again, like this shows 
I know people have said it online, like this shows what the predator can be. Like you drop that in any context and just let the characters be themselves and let the threat of the predator be itself. And this just works again. Like I'm coming at this from a novice. You're coming. This as someone who's seen a lot of the franchise. We're both into this. Go see this. We are going to hop on the light rail. I mean, the bullet train. Let's Can you tell we're from Arizona? (laughs) I don't know what that was, to be honest. I don't know where I pulled that out of. Brandon, the train is leaving the station. Let's make sure we hop on. Can you introduce us and our listeners to Bullet Train? So this is based on the Kotaro Isaka novel, uh, Maria Beetle, which in English is Bullet Train. Uh, it's directed by David Leach, who gave us stuff like Atomic Blonde, who gave us Deadpool 2, and who actually uh, co-directed the first John Wick movie. But way before that, he was Brad Pitt's stunt double in Fight Club and a bunch of other things. Uh, which Which is how he got Brad Pitt to connect with this. There's actually a bunch of stories about there. And Brad Pitt is very happy to tell you about that. Um, we follow Brad Pitt in this movie as Ladybug. He is... So he is some sort of former secret assassin, maybe current assassin. He's kind of in between jobs at the moment, but he's been trying to reinvent his look on life. He's much more Zen. He's, you know, got a bowler hat. He's, you know, uh, he's talking to like staff people and he's just trying to live a good patient life. He gets dragged back in by his handler, voiced by Sandra Bullock, uh, of course, reuniting from Lost City of D to basically do like a, what is a quick snatch and grab job, or at least he thinks on this bullet train on the way to Kyoto, where in the midst of it, we meet a bunch of characters, but I'll just go into the bigger ones first and foremost. You have the prince, played by Joey King, who is a seemingly British secret agent who is just this young kid who, you know, uses the thing of like, please, I'm just a child, that, you know, kind of thing to, you know, mask her own badassness. You have Andrew Koji, who is the father, a.k.a. Yuichi, who is another Japanese assassin who has connections to a lot of crime families. And then most significantly, you have Lemon and Tangerine, played by Brian Tyree Henry and Aaron Taylor Johnson, respectively, two British assassins and allegedly twins who are sent by a crime boss to get the same briefcase that Brad Pitt's character is getting. It all translates into chaos and action sequences and, you know, stuffed animals and snakes and the whole hullabaloo on the midst of this bullet train going, you know, 200 miles per hour on the way to Kyoto. Who will get the case? Who will die? We don't know. Noah, on to you. Um, and this is for me. I had seen pretty much all of David Leach's smography up to this point. How familiar with you were, you know, Deadpool and, you know, the big action franchise that he had been a part of? We were kind of mixed on the trailers. Does this live up to expectations? We're having our little Zoom call and I'm looking at your facial expression. I'm trying to gauge, but I would call myself a fan. I think from that initial trailer leading up to now, I even asked Brandon the ridiculous question of, should we should we both get the book? Should we read it? Like binge read it before we watch this film? Uh, was totally up for it. You know, it, it, on paper, but I'm not going to read. If, if you guys want plot devices, book club, tell us. <laughs> PD book club, P, PDBC. Okay. But David Leach, I am major fan. Looking at his filmography now, he has Deadpool 2 under his belt, Hobbs and Shaw, Atomic Blonde, um, John Wick, as you say, he co-directed. Yeah, he was, I think Leach was the perfect person to pluck and put into this movie. Um, it definitely has that, that Deadpool taste of, very like heavy hitting action sequences uh, balanced with the lightheartedness of an assassin who is amidst other like very, very uh, revered and deadly assassins. And he's just kind of like tip, trying to tiptoe his way throughout the situation. Um, I did find that part enjoyable. Uh, the casting is just out. It's out the park, even though we are on the train for most of the movie a la Train to Busan. Uh, it makes such great use of color and cinematography as we move from cart to cart. And I never found myself once asking like, oh my gosh, when are we going to get off of this thing? Um, I only expected the next scene to excite me further. And for the most part, this film delivered. I, I'm i a big fan. Yeah, at least for me, 
I was never the biggest David Leach fan, uh, or at the very least, I haven't been a fan to the extent that everyone else has. Everyone loved Atomic Blonde. I thought Atomic Blonde was fine. Everyone loved Deadpool 2. I thought Deadpool 2 was fine. Hobson Shaw, I thought was maybe his best so far, but again, that's because primarily of The Rock and Jason Statham and not so much his directing style. I found him to kind of be a director who, as I have dubbed it, toy box action, where it's a thing of like, you open the toy chest, you kind of throw everything out, and then you kind of catch as much of them as you can and doing as much as you can with them. And there is an art to that, and I respect all that. And you know, even going back to his work on John Wick, that's evident. This, I will say, is the movie I have liked from him the most. I think it's the most consistently fun. I liked a lot of the characters. You're right. It's got this great use of color. And as we go back to Prey, space, like you go back to the idea of the bullet train as kind of this thing of like luxury and, you know, heightened technology. And most of the movie takes place on the train. And while it's not like Snowpiercer where like every car is distinct and, you know, that kind of thing, it is still very sleek and modern. And it allows for some really cool environments, particularly this kind of weirdly empty bar that Brad Pitt keeps going back to. Like, there's this packed train, but, like, no one's in the bar, which is kind of strange. But it provides this great space for, like, oh, here's another boss fight. Here's, like, another character interaction. And it provides these great spaces for it. I do think it's a bit too long. I think we'll get into some of the writing issues that I have a bit of problem with. But I did have fun with this. I'm worried that the main character looks good and sounds good in the book. And I can find myself, like, actually thinking it's funny. Or, you know, I I am curious about that comedy the comedic appeal that would come through the text rather than the screen, because this film, I was watching it with, and and I expected like a lot of action to be funny. Like even something like wanted, I was kind of like laughing at certain, certain moments, but here I was convinced I was watching an action movie that had comedy in it. And then my friend pointed out to me who I'd went and seen it with. And he's like, no, this was a straight comedy. Like it was, that's the genre that it's in. And I was like, really? Oh, cause I don't know. Like it, it did have that kind of, flavor to it like where i couldn't read the comedy and uh, this is this is going to be a gripe and i think it might be the one gripe that i have with the film is i'm confused on brad pitt's inclusion and i say that with like a lot of heart in my chest um everybody go watch mr and mrs smith but i just felt that when placed in a room surrounded by the twins uh joey king's the prince uh, Latino folk. We got Bad Bunny in this yes. film. And I believe his acting debut. Acting debut. He's going to be in the MCU as El, El, El Muerto. El Muerto. We'll have to see how that goes. Uh, full, I forgot. Credited, credited here as Benito Amartinez Ocasio. So that was uh, great to see. And then uh, Zazie Beats plucked from Deadpool 2. I'm sure they have a, uh, a great relationship. But yeah, Brad Pitt amidst all these other stars, and I'm talking his character. Sorry, I'm not talking... Um, the man pit uh man pit uh but surrounded by somebody like the twins i just found them to be so much more compelling and so much more interesting to follow and the moments that his character ladybug is alone i did kind of just want the next scene to come because i wasn't as into this like hokey like you know like tip like it's just, he's supposed to be this goofy kind of guy that has so much bad luck that he doesn't really know what to do with himself in, in a Ted situation like this. Yeah. He's an action, like he's a martial arts, physical combat, hand to hand, like super, but still I just couldn't, I wasn't convinced that this was the person, the most interesting person to follow. So uh, if you feel the same way, let me know. If you think that I'm just like standing on my pedestal and going, the movie, then you can also let me know that any PR is good PR. He's good in here. Like, he's good. Joey King's good in this. Like, a lot of actors are good in this, but we'll get to the two that are great later. But I think Brad Pitt specifically as Ladybug is the least interesting of them. He has the least, 
happen. And they, they kind of make a joke about it through the movie where it's like, he is not supposed to be here. He's supposed to grab a thing, get off the train and go, you know, to a bar somewhere in Tokyo. Like he doesn't want to be here. And there's an appeal to that. Like the idea of like the reluctant hero who just so happens to be like great at all of this and gets kind of tied back up in the world. Like that's fun. It's a cliche that we've seen before, but Brad Pitt can handle that. But you're right. When contrasted against like every other character, seemingly, even the ones that are kind of, in my opinion, misused. He comes off as a bit bland, like it's a lot of platitudes, and that goes into my criticism about the writing too, which we might get to. But again, he's just the least interesting part of it. And personal opinion, I think this movie would have been 10 times more interesting. I get it. It would have been different probably than the narrative it's based off of. But swap Brad Pitt and Sandra Bullock. Let me have Sandra Bullock as that goofy kind of whatever she's supposed to do here. Um, you know, have that be the central centralized uh, personality because I can I can see that. We just saw that in um, The Lost City of Z where maybe she she did not pull off the hand-to-hand, but we definitely could see something like that. Um, other or people like have- even... Even going back to like Ocean's 8, which I got vibes of this from, like there's a similar character you can place into this. I'm even thinking of Hilary Swank in the, it's not called The Pig, but it's that movie where The Hunt, I think it's called. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I can even see that. Like, I, I think that that would have been um, a, an excellent casting choice. Uh, but that's, that's it on Pitt's character. Um, let's get into the writing, Brandon. I do want to talk about how Leech is able to translate these isolated moments, whether it's the kill count between the twins or it's the history of the wolf, El Lobo, uh, before he hops on this train. To me, the writing gets way up in its own head. Uh, I think there's this aspect of like, even from the start when they mentioned a bunch of like, you have the idea of luck and then you get into the idea of like what a ladybug is. And like, again, as you mentioned, like the idea of forward motion with the train, like there's a lot of symbolism to this movie that I'm sure works better on the page. But in the midst of like, a crazy action spectacle that we just trying to present here. I kind of found myself rolling my eyes a lot of just, this is not as clever as you think it is. And just sitting down to kind of make it worth, no matter how good the performances are, just is not working for me because I want to, like you said, I want to get an hour and a half, hour 40 in and get to Kyoto, like get to whatever that big climax is going to be. And we keep having to slow down. And the whole point of bullet trends is that you don't slow down. And it kind of goes against the whole idea of the movie, let alone it's just a really pretentious writing device. I know I've been criticizing this, but I need to talk about the thing that about this movie that I absolutely adore. Brian Tyree Henry and Aaron Taylor Johnson are incredible in this. Literally 10 minutes after they were introduced, I found myself going, why aren't they the stars of this movie? Why aren't they the stars of this movie? You did Hobbs and Shaw, which is almost exactly the same dynamic. Why couldn't you have just done this? Uh, they're so good. And apparently a lot of their dialogue was either improvised or kind of um, redeveloped lines from the script. But there's this moment where they're they're explaining Brian Tyree's Henry character who has an affection for like Thomas the Tank Engine thing like that, and Aaron Taylor Johnson's poking fun of him at it, and that continues throughout the whole movie, and that's probably the most interesting symbolic resonance this movie has at all, and it only works because Johnson and Henry, for as goofy as their accents can get, sometime I think just have this really great genuine bond between the two. They're absolutely hilarious. They nail the fight sequences. I just adored watching them on screen. And I like that even though they're twins, we're not restricted to only experiencing them, taking them in when they're together. The film does an excellent job, the writing of separating them and giving them their own moments to uh, be their own characters without, you know, relying on each other for that kind of support. Um, Aaron Taylor Johnson, action freaking superstar, loved him in Kick-Ass. And here he's just like this suave Bond-like figure. And I, I, the man, he's the man. Like I was a fan. 
And they also do this kind of clever thing where they take them off of the train at certain points and you think, oh, well, that's the end of that. And they bring them back several times. And I'm like, they're almost like the brothers who will never die. And and Johnson has this wonderful moment where we get Leech's callback to another film that he directed, 300, and straight Sparta kicks him. Um, Wait, they, they just didn't do 300. Are you sure? Yeah, that's Zack Snyder. Oh my gosh, why did I do you know what? Keep that in that people know that no one is infallible, okay? Even successful, um, revered podcast hosts like Mr. King and Mr. We Mr. are flawed. That is right, okay? Um, needless to say, there is a Sparta kick in here. Shout out Zack Snyder. Um, we just experienced Brian Tyree Henry as Fastos in The Eternals, and I, I was just pleased to have him return to the screen in a character that he embodied so well. Um, he plays with... Uh, plot devices uh in the movie that are uh that you know the backstory of or you will eventually learn the backstory of and his type of the, the, the expressions the uh the body language he is able to pull off um he has an intense moment with uh, joey king's character the prince and uh you know like brandon said these were the people to watch and when they're on screen you will be pleased with what you're experiencing I should quickly mention Joey King, who has to do a lot in this movie, and I think just shows how much of a talent she really is. Let's stay on that King topic, you know, fellow okay. King. I want to talk about, you know, fellow, fellow Jewish Kings, fellow Jewish King. I want to talk about, um, are your eyes blue as well? Yes. Wow. The list goes on. Okay. Um, King in the kissing booth, King in, I think it's called the, the box. It was a scary movie. It was it was like the death box or something like that. Wishing box. Wish the wish. No, no, no. Death oh, wish. Um, uh, the wish upon. Trivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wish upon. And I got us, and uh, of course, her, her run as the uh, primary character in Hulu's. The act. The act. Um, with, great. I just want to say that I hadn't given myself, I wasn't opening up to King. I think I really just saw her on screen and I uh, was getting like this child actor um, vibes from her where I just, I felt like I couldn't escape her. Um, All right. And not, not to, not to speak ill on her performances. I just found that the content that she was involved with was never really speaking to my genre, especially after I watched wish upon. And I was just like, this movie is terrible. Um, and then I, I didn't explore, I didn't explore her work, even uh, something like the princess that just dropped on um, Hulu. Now I'm interested in watching because King has this, um, innocence that she can pull off and then flip it at a moment's notice that I was so entertained by. Um, call me a fan. This role was excellent for her. I think that it's going to turn a lot of people toward her who have not experienced her work before. And, uh, oh, she appears in The Conjuring as well. And that was excellent. Um, I want to speak on the action expectation because the hand-to-hand -hand fights are great in the trailer i saw that king was attached and i thought oh like this will be new only because i hadn't experienced king in this in this facet before and i thought oh i just hope that she, i hope that she can pull it off like I, I don't know if it's her and brad pitt in the same room and they're engaging in a fight i wonder how that will look and like how she how she'll do the character she plays is absolutely perfect. Like this, this really was uh, a shining, a shining moment for her. Uh, so nothing but praise. And I think that that's my comment. Brandon. I also, I also just want to mention Hiroki Kisanada, who has been killing it in Japanese cinema and who has popped up in a bunch of other things. He actually gets a scene with Joey Kane that is not something I knew I wanted, but they have this really weird dynamic that I was like, I know this is only like two minutes, but I kind of want more of this. Um, and I will just say the ending of the movie, it pissed me off a little bit. 
in that this movie is beginning a couple of whitewashing complaints because of its Japanese novel and, you know, a lot of primary white characters. And I will simply say that I don't necessarily agree with the criticism until the ending. And then I go, yeah, that's pretty valid. And when you see the movie, you'll see what I mean. And I get that Michael Shannon is the white death, but I was not expecting a white man to be the villain. I was not expecting like just Shannon to show up and go, hello. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess. Yeah. And then there's a scene between him and Joey King towards the end that I won't say what it is, but it, it didn't really work for me. There is a character or a actor who is underutilized in this movie. And maybe because I'm a big The Boys fan, but I really wanted to see Karen Fukuhara in a fight scene. I thought that she was, as soon as I saw her face, I was like, she is a action superstar. I mean, we all love Kimiko in The Boys, if you're a fan. And here she plays uh, Keita Izumi, a concession girl throughout the train, um, underutilized because you know she's got that potential. But unfortunately, this is not the character she plays. She does uh, pull off a performance here uh, that is fun to watch. Uh, however, any action fans who are expecting Kimiko in this, sorry, it is a new role for our uh, Fukuhara here. First of all, Karen Fukuhara is great, and she's been great since Suicide Squad, so nearly that. Um, I do want to quickly just wrap on the action sequences real quick. Those are, I think, a pretty great saving grace in the movie. Like, there's a hand-to-hand sequence between actually Brad Pitt and uh, Bad Bunny's characters. That's really fun in that bar car. Um, there's a lot of great, like, hand-to-hand kind of swirls and jujitsus that kind of go on. And, you know, all the stuff between, you know, Taylor Johnson and Tyree Henry's characters has this kind of, like, British wrestling kind of aspect to it. Like every character has a distinct fighting style when they get to be close up. And I found that was really interesting. Let's move on to ratings. For me, uh, I know I kind of teased early on that this would be pretty low for me, but I, I did have fun with this. It's just that I'm not as engaged with David Leach as the filmmaker as I'd like to be. Maybe someday I think this is the best that I've enjoyed it so far. Seven and a half for me. I really did enjoy this. I thought, again, it's too long. It gets up its own ass at times. It really tries one too many twists for my taste. And like you, like we kind of teased, it has a lot of guest stars that who I think are way too talented to be utilized like this. And again, it's lead character. But that being said, it's got really great characters overall. The performances, for the most part, are great. See it for Taylor Johnson and Tyree Henry alone. They're in a lot of the movie, and they're great in it, and I hope nothing but the best for them. The action sequences are really fun. Its setting is mostly utilized well. Again, all the problems aside, I would gladly watch this on like TV or streaming again. In theaters, I would say it's up to you. I am going to give this a nine out of 10. I think that's really, yeah, I really coming into this episode, I'm telling you, like I was hot, like tens across the board because of, you know, very early notes that I had, which was the most exciting things I had to say, which was the color um, cinematography, like you say, the use of space, um, interesting, compelling characters, regardless if I wasn't behind Ladybug, uh, a forward moving story, literally. uh, And one with a finale that I think is, it's a little, lack i don't want to say lackluster but i will say that the throughout the movie the journey the journey is more intense and uh i think compelling than the actual you know end all be all of it uh that being said this movie was tremendous i think it will easily make my uh top 10 at the end of the year we'll see but it is it's up there i think that this was uh entirely entertaining and as soon as it hits streaming platforms this is a movie i can go back and watch kind of in chunks and it would still pay its service you know i, I really did enjoy this movie so check it out it is in theaters it just released on august 5th um it's a it's not too loud which i'm thankful for but it when those punches hit like it it, it has excellent um production members in the sound department and uh, i'm sure you'll be pleased 
Thank you for spending some time with us in our reviewer chairs for uh, these new releases. But now we are going back to our streaming What is Going On Here Wars. But we're actually just talking about Netflix, okay? HBO Max, we're not talking about you today, okay? Go back to your corner. We've already dealt with you. Now on to Netflix. Brandon, we are covering the last batch of season four on Stranger Things. It's, it's like over probably six hours of content to watch. We both watched it. If you are a fan, you know, listening to our comments. If you're not a fan, maybe this will, you know, nudge you in that direction. Either or. Here we go. Brandon. Go for the third week in a row. Please give me the blah. It's too Twilight Zone. He's got it. He he knows what I'm talking about. Uh, Stranger Things season four. Uh, We got all of part one back in May, and then we got uh, the last two episodes in July. And we've been busy. We've been busy, okay? Hey. And okay, look, we should have talked about this sooner. We get it. But you yeah. know what? Only Murders came out. You know, the, our flag means Miss death. Marvel. Miss Marvel. Stop uh, the hate on Twitter, okay? We were receiving too many tweets of people hating our, our lack of coverage, okay? We get it. We get it. Wanted to get to it. And obviously, there is so much to cover that the entire world has been talking about the show. We can finally get to it. So we talked about episode one like a month, two months ago, something like that. In episode one, spoiler, Chrissy dies. We already went over that. It was disturbing and we moved on, uh, except we haven't moved on because that's the entire crux of the show. Uh, we once again see our cast of characters uh, in many different uh, facets. We see Mike and Will and Eleven on their own journey with, uh, oh God, uh, Matthew Modine's character. Uh, Dr. Bremer, who is revealed to be alive. We see, we see Sam Mellon's back again, and they're trying to get Eleven's powers back. We see our Motley crew back in Hawkins of Steve and Robin and Nancy and the whole crew, along with uh, Dustin and Erica for good measure. Um, we see, uh, we see Max struggling with, again, the death of her brother, which has been completely immortalized in episode four, Dear Billy, which she comes into contact with Vecna, all in this, you know, massive thing of trying to clear Eddie's name. You know, get Vecna out of the picture, save Hawkins, get El- uh, get Elvin's powers back. There is a lot to go into, and I'm sure that most of you have already seen this before and just want to hear us talk about this. So this is going to be pretty freeform as much as we can get. Noah, of all the stuff we can talk about, and I, I want to start out with actually this. You know, we got this kind of release schedule from Netflix of, you know, seven hours of content and then saving the last two for last, or the last three for last because the finale was two hours long. Did you enjoy that release schedule? Yeah, I think that they used that release schedule very well. They allowed the show to simmer, marinate. The schedule just played into the hype and, and it was, it was done well. You didn't, I didn't feel like I was waiting too long and I feel like I wasn't given enough before approaching the finale. I thought I was, I know the stakes of the story. I know, um, how these characters are going to be used. At least I have a notion of it. I know who the villain is, the big bad. And I'm, I'm expecting a finale that like really packs in as much intensity as these, as this mystery, like, uh, who done it has really been described to us. And for the most part, I think it, it pays off the actual episode content themselves. Um, but staying on the schedule, I didn't mind it at all. I kind of like this, it's literally 70% of it or 80% of it. And let's save the 24, uh, let's, let's wait a month. Let's let the conversation continue online. Um, with something like hour plus long episodes, there was so much to discuss. I think you could have easily made this into 11, 45 minute to an hour long episodes and kind of pasted it out a bit more. That being said, I did wind up by the end kind of being tricked into going, yeah, this was pretty cool. Like it was a you know two month wait to wait for this massive finale and we will get into it. It works. 
Let's Where start. do we even start? Like, there's just so much with season four. Okay, this is like, I was trying to generate notes for this, generate what am I, a robot. And so <laughs> I was just, this is my first note. I said, I feel like I want to went on an expedition into not one, but three major locations, which I was thankful for because we finally got out of that city. Um, no hate to, I want to say like the city, Hawkins, no hate to Hawkins, but I do, I was happy just to see my characters in new environments. Um, that being, you know, the facility that Eleven was raised in and really like uh like traumatized in that's uh russia where hopper is being held and then that is the upside down which i think should be our first discussion um how pleased were you brandon with the expansion of the upside down world and uh Vecna as a character we could dive into even, but I really want to focus this early discussion on the upside down itself and how you think the Duffer brothers were able to uh, further expand what this like creative world is. Do you remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about what that spinoff was going to be? And I said, I couldn't talk about it yet. Yes. Now I get to talk about it. Yes. Uh, I want that spinoff to be the time that Vecna is in the upside down. I think that is such a fascinating thing. I think it's episode eight or nine. I can't remember which, but it's one of the last two where we see, you know, Vecna, spoiler, is Henry, the aide from, you know, Eleven's time in the hospital who, you know, gets transported by Eleven at the upside down. And we see that area of like desecration and despair and like what the upside down actually represents at its most kind of primordial state. And we see the creation of the, uh, of the mind flayer. And I think that kind of interaction was just like, Oh, how long has this been there? How long has he known these things? And you kind of get the dialogue from, um, from Vecna as well, played brilliantly by Jamie Kimmelbauer, who we'll talk about later, who I think just really brings home the idea of the alienness of the upside down, but also this kind of weirdly primal humanistic kind of sense of it like this could be us if we're not and i'm not saying it's a global warming metaphor but it might be a global warming metaphor regarding vecna we have somebody who is very much like freddy krueger and after casey's death in the first episode we after chrissy's death in the first episode you have that lingering fear of some of our characters getting picked off in that same fashion and it is grisly it is like it is horrifying if you've watched it if you haven't please go check out that first episode because i was just i was such a fan i didn't expect that kind of body horror in this fourth season would you agree this is the scariest season absolutely yeah immediately immediate yes this is this this is the i think strongest second season right because every of course you want to put uh season one up on that shelf um and then here i just i like that vecna is now connected to the upside down and the origination of some of these entities that we've known, like the one from season two. Um, we don't really know it's his place among the demigorgons or how he fits into that world, but that's exactly why Brandon's suggestion of a spinoff series into the upside down on Vecna's journey would be so interesting. And I think um, just a further flex of their Duffer brothers and what they're able to tell uh, with specifically with that character. I wanted to see Hopper die at the end of season three. I think that would have made sense for his arc, but I was telling a friend like, I don't get the great character development from Hopper and Joyce and from Murray in the whole Russian prison arc without him being alive. And I think that's actually, it becomes really poignant by the end. Like initially I kind of felt like this is this weird kind of, you know, intimate trauma in the prison where we're just seeing Hopper kind of beaten and broken down in the midst of a lot of nuance that I don't think really lands, but neither one there. But by the end of it, it becomes this great kind of fun prison break story. We finally get confirmation between Hopper and Joyce. Like it feels so much earned and Murray gets his great moment. Like 
again, I don't want to stick on the final two episodes, but there's so much in there that feels like earned as a fan, even as a new one. And the the inmate, the the prisoner who Hopper meets in while he's being held there, ends up being a very interesting character to follow. And so, um, and so the final showdown between the Gorgon and Hopper as he's like. Alexander the Great with his giant sword, his uh broadsword. That was I love swords, man. Like freaking Deathly Hollows, Neville. Like that is just that was a that was a beautiful fight. That did um, give me Neville vibes, actually. Not much. Hey, um, but I think there's not much going on in Russia besides Hopper's, like besides Joyce's journey to save Hopper. Like there wasn't really the show doesn't ask you to expect much else out of that uh, rescuing job. However, but again, like. But like going to that just real quickly, Joyce, I've heard criticism like after the first season, she's not as important. And I kind of disagree because like every season has given her has given her some kind of early intuition as to what the story will actually be. And she is the thing that like gets Murray into the prison, that gets Hopper out, that gets Yuri to have a change of heart. Like she is, for lack of a better word, the heart of this series. And the show has, for the most part, not forgotten about that. And I appreciate it. Let's talk about the kids. The kids who are now teenagers. Um, I'm just such a Sadie Sink fan, man. I'm, I, I don't want to just I don't want to just talk about Max, but she she's in one of my favorite episodes, or maybe my favorite episode of season four, which is Dear Billy. Um, that kind of showdown and fear the friends feel when their friend starts floating is just so real. Not it's not real at all, but it's so relatable. Not relatable at all. <laughs> it was just. Have you been controlled by a demon? I didn't I tell you two, like a couple weeks ago. Okay. Anyways, um, the they haven't forgotten what makes the kids so special and what makes them so conversationally interesting. I do think I I'm not sure what they did with Will this season. I do know that Will is gay. You know that was like teased or no, kind of like Noah Schnapp says he is, and I frankly believe him. Yeah, but do you? Did, I didn't read that. You know, I, I didn't oh, really okay. read it. No, I didn't really read that. No, I mean, read it through the screen. You get oh, me? Yeah. Like, I wasn't really feeling that. But uh, thankfully, you know, if they don't have a lot to do with the kids, they introduce new characters. And one particular shining member of the cast in this season is Jonathan's friend. Oh, my goodness. Where is Argyle. he? Absolutely. Like, even Eddie, the, the, the show introduces such such great characters that it's a shame that we're only going to get one more season with them. Um, not with Eddie, but... Um, yep. I wanted to talk about just those additional cast members. Brandon, do you have notes for them? I mean, we got to talk about Eddie. I mean, he's the character who has, I think, I, I don't know, because I was not part of the Stranger Things fandom at the time. But I think aside from Eleven, I think Eddie has transcended the fandom of Stranger Things more than any other character. He spoke to such an aspect of being an outcast and being of your own self, but also just wanting what's best for you and finding a family and finding interests. And so when that moment hits, even as cheesy as it is, the Metallica number, it freaking works because it just feels so visceral and natural to his character. And when he does, you know, when he gets destroyed by the bats, it feels heartbreaking. I I wanted you to mention that uh, Metallica, like guitar solo Which, that he did, has. Did you know that was mostly him? No, no, I, I did see the video going around though that he can he can actually play it, uh, which is just a, a, a nice flex to show everybody. Apparently, that was mostly him. The solo was done by a double. I hear you, and the show does make the bold choice of killing off his character in a fashion that you don't really see coming or even like sit well with because you're like, wait, why did Eddie have to die? You know, why did that have to happen? But it makes sense to his character. Like throughout the series, he's running, he's going away from things. He's kind of doing, he's being by himself. And even when we see him at first, like 
he's comfortable being himself. He's comfortable being the outcast in the D&D club of being the Hellfire club and like just doing his thing. And by the end of it, he's found family and friends and a reason to fight for. And like, it, it's that visceral kind of, much like Prey, that kind of visceral survivalism that just pounds its way through the screen. We can talk now about Eleven. She is kind of like the, you know, like the, the save, not the savior. What is it called? The chosen one, right? Of the series. Yeah. She's the, the hero. And this season uses Eleven's history as, um, you know, being in this institution where she's, be, she's put through like abuse, uh, emotionally, physically by her peers, by her, um, you know, who she calls Papa and, it's an effort to reignite whatever fuels Eleven's power. In this case, there's some kind of mental blocker that she has to re-experience uh, before she's able to tap into that side of her again. I don't know how exactly I feel because there is one part of me that says the show sometimes doesn't know what to do with Eleven until the end. The first season did because she was fish out of water, you know, giving her and the friends that moment to introduce Eleven to the world. And then season two saw her dynamic with Hopper really explored. And I fairly enjoyed that. But when it comes to the core plot of the series, that's where I make the note that they we don't know what to do with Eleven until the end because we know she has to activate or stand off against the evil have her appear then, but what can she do till then is kind of a big question for me. Um, I don't know how you feel, Brandon, if you feel the same at all, uh, but please share your thoughts on Eleven's uh, usage, her how they use her in this season. First of all, I love how painful, like this sounds so bad, I love how painful and dark it is. That, well, I love the idea of Eleven finding herself and finding her family and finding someone like Mike who she can really just connect with, even if the season is going back to the idea of, you know, they can't really communicate and they have to relearn that. But I love the idea of Levin being in this place of stability. And then Brenner comes back, played despicably by Matthew Modine, who just comes back. Disgustingly well. Yeah, he's just an amazing villain. Just has this like Machiavellian tone to his voice. I'm like, ah, it's great. But I love the narrative of it. It's like, she has stability and now here comes the person who, for lack of a better word, tortured and abused her for years, who took her away from her mother, who imbued her with these powers that she didn't even want. And now he's the only, at least as far as she knows, the only person who can help her be the person she was meant to be. Like, that's a dark aspect of storytelling that I'm kind of impressed the show went with. And I love seeing Eleven's journey of kind of saying, no, I don't need you. I've never needed you. Like I can be myself and be, you know, the person I was meant to be without your help, which makes, I think that ending scene where, you know, spoiler, even if we haven't, Renner dies and there's that great moment of just like, you know, it promised me that a lot and she doesn't, she doesn't have to. So to me, you're saying you actually really enjoyed and admired her journey in this season. I will give you credit because I think every season has had to have the 11 problem, which is she's the only superpowered member of the cast. How do we nerf her even when we have a superpowered villain in Vecna? I agree with that. And it's like they forgot about her cousin or sister who was introduced. We're not talking about that. Right, that was so right. bad. <laughs> um, but I, I, Millie Bobby Brown, she she is she knows that she can pull out of her um, box of cards, her deck of cards. And here, I think that her performance is great. Um, but that's I think that goes without saying. Like everybody knows that Millie Bobby Brown has it. Uh, but I'm trying to think when I mentioned earlier about the expedition kind of feel into these three different territories i the rescuing of 11 were kind of like the escape of 11 because she doesn't need her friends to rescue her they do give her a lift at the end but that's as helpful as like an uber that shows up after you've already walked home um and 
I just want to say that 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 action sequence with the helicopter, with Papa bleeding out underneath her, the sniper, it takes place in a desert. And yet it's so it's just it speaks volumes through the screen. I I found myself really intrigued by her escape from that facility because I was waiting for it. You're waiting for it for so long. And when it finally does come, I think that um, it doesn't betray you like the moment is well deserved and earned. And it feels like just because she's just getting because she's just getting her powers back, it feels like a warm up to her eventual fight with Beckman. Just like, oh, I can take this, you know, inanimate object down. Now I can actually fight like the devil. Uh, Brandon, what what should be those partying topics that we kind of cover well, before we? One is as far as the many many characters we got old and new. Who do you think, as far as performance wise, got the standout into this? Because there's again, a, we mentioned Sadie Sink already, but who would you loop into that group? I would loop into that group. Joseph Quinn, Joseph Quinn. Uh, yeah. I think all of his flowers that he's been receiving is because he, he captured everyone's heart from the second episode he was in. I would obviously say Sadie Sink in there. The fact that she's not nominated for an Emmy is a tragedy. And I think that will go down in Emmy's history. Um, Joe Quinn, who the more I've seen with him in interviews, the more I'm impressed because he is so unlike Eddie. And the fact that he is able to completely do a 180 of himself into that role is still mind bogglingly good to me. Um, I do also want to mention, uh, oh God, Caleb Glofflin, who I think has been wasted by the series a lot and I think finally gets a lot of room to breathe as a performer. All of you have seen Concrete Cowboy know that's a thing. Um, and then I also just want to mention uh, Matthew Modine, of course, as Brenner, who's just despicable. And then obviously Billy Bobby Brown, uh, Marty Blair, who played the younger version of Eleven, who's also great. And then last but not least, who we kind of looped our way around, Jamie Campbell Bauer, who finally, I think, gives this show a villain, like a proper physical antagonist to actually work around. He is despicable but you kind of understand where he's coming from he's got this weird twisted momentum to his character that i just i found fascinating no matter what incarnation he was in and correct me if i'm wrong this is the same they use the same performer for both vecna in and out of costume right that, that was jamie in costume wow yeah uh, prosthetics here in the series i'm so happy they went the route of using uh, for, for as much as they could practical um, elements and Ve- I think Vecna's design should yeah. should be nominated for anything something like please let me let me google some rewards that it's received because no doubt it has some like I know that people are making fun of like the scene where he's like just in the upside down he's kind of like squatted around but like other than that like everything else looks great like, don't take one frame out of context the other question I wanted to have just to wrap it up is that we got news this week that season five has just started their writer's room and they're actually asking for people to send in fan theories if you could pitch something for next season, and I know this is a giant question, what would you pitch? Can you go ahead and share your theories? Because I know I, you must have some. I had a theory that, you know, like the weird sentient dust that makes up the upside down? I yes. almost wonder if they're going to go for a broken season five. Now, the thing of like whatever the dust kind of touched, whoever like inf- inhaled it kind of becomes infected by the upside down. And that's how that kind of kind of has his gambit of the whole thing. Like he needed a physical connection with the world. And, like the dust. I, I think that could be a thing. Cause they keep bringing up the dust as like this plot device kind of, hey, I mentioned it, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know what I want to see with Mike and Eleven's relationship. I think they're fine. But at the same time, I think the Mike and Will relationship is just too tantalizing not to explore. I've heard rumors that they are going to go time travel route and like going back and seeing how Vecna affected the past couple seasons. I am fascinated, but I am also very, very worried. Um, and obviously just keep Steve doing Steve things. Like let Steve be the, the big brother character he's always meant to be and like let him be happy. I think that episode one, kill one of the kids. Next, next, next detail. Let me see. Next bullet point. Um, Joyce is the big bad. 
have her possessed, have her flip into something. I have no idea, but Brandon's saying she's the heart of the show. Turn her into the dark of the show. I'm going complete flip the coin. Make season five that season where you're like, ah, all my fans are just, all my characters are done. Okay, next bullet point. Hold on, Brandon. I have my last one. Next bullet point. I think it's too late in the game to introduce like, a new like conceptual land that's why there's the upside down and then there's hawkins which is on earth i mention earth because i'm thinking like okay let's just pretend let's pretend the upside down is either a because i like the dimensional aspect like maybe it is in another dimension but i kind of want to be i want to get into like cosmic horror and say the upside down is like the old world or the upside down is actually that's the reality you know some kind of matrix moment where people are just like whoa you're flipping my like what is life what is reality and then or it could be another planet i don't know you know i i don't know things i say things (laughs) thank you thank you brandon hey of those bullet points i know you wanted to say something so tell me what you think because people have been speculating that will becomes a bigger hero figure in season five as opposed to season four if the ending fight is between him and Joyce, I will lose my mind. Will versus Joyce. Um, this is my season five theory. Introduce the pantheon of big bads or big goods that exist in the Upside Down. If there is a Glenda, there has to be a, what's her name? Are Glenda you... the Good Witch? And oh. Um, Elphaba. Uh... If there's a Glenda, there has to be an Elphaba, okay? There's Cynthia Erivo. There's Ariana Grande. Let's see who those, let's see who those members are in the Upside Down. Are any of those going to come to you? I mean, Brandon... Yes. This is me telling everybody, yes, it's going to come true. Yeah, bookmark this for like uh, summer 2024, whatever season five does actually come out. Uh, Let's move on to ratings. Uh, For me, season four, again, this is tough because there's just so much to talk about and we barely scratched the surface of all this. I mentioned when we talked about the first episode, I still think season one is the best of them. I think it's the tightest. I think it knows what it is the most, even if it's gimmicks. Annoy me a little, but I think the characters make up for it. When everything else is happening, I think it's the most horror-infected season, both in terms of psychological and in terms of body horror. But I also think it's got this great heart and this great patience to where it wants to go, for better or worse. I think it ends on a complete bang and just earns all of its crescendo greats. Again, Sadie Sink, Winona Ryder, Billy Bobby Brown, Jamie Campbell Bauer, the performances are incredible in this. The visuals are great. It's my second favorite season, but that's only for personal reasons. It's a nine, easily. I'm going to end on this rating. It's an eight and a half out of 10 for me. I think that the format worked beautifully for what the content that uh, it covered. I think that, yes, we get wonderful executions of body horror, of, um, of despair, of a looming threat. Um, I think that regardless of where the show was headed, like season three to me was a little sour. They were able to just take their core concept and just really deliver it to us in a way that felt like I said this earlier and I, and I just want to use it again. Like it doesn't, it didn't betray you. Like this really was a stranger things fans like fantasy where we got to see so much intensity, so much power, so much buildup and it pays off in the end. Uh, I absolutely love the hour plus episodes. I just feel like I'm watching a movie every time I sit down and for better, for worse, like I I'm a fan, Uh, but eight and a half for me, it tuned me back onto the stranger things train when season five drops, when that spinoff details uh, come out, we'll definitely be covering it here. And, uh, Duffer Brothers, I can't wait to see what you do next. You've got some very creative minds. And if that's going to be further applied into the Upside Down, or if you create an entirely new um, IP, I just know that I can trust the Duffers. 
And that'll do it for episode 32 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning into our limited topics, but expansive topics for what they were. We had a lot to say about this. We are completely out of breath. But while we've got you, do us a favor. Twitter, Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed, at Plot Devices, and TikTok now at Plot Devices as well. we got content up on all of those. Stay tuned for when all of our episodes are dropping. They, again, drop every other week. So check out our Season 0 episodes of Directorial Debuts. Our Season 1 is coming relatively soon, in at least the next month, month and a half or so. So if you got any suggestions for that, please, again, let us know. Twitter and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. And give us a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. That helps us a lot and shows us how many people are listening to the show. I want to thank my co-host, Noah Guzman, for bearing with me for as long as you have. Noah, where can people find you online and what you got going on in your life? 32 episodes long now, Brandon, okay? You know? Um, you deserve some time. You deserve some time. Um, I got going on. Um, I'm actually busying myself with tuning back into like non, I would say like major titles. Like I just checked out Incantation on Netflix. Um, I still have not put in time, but I do want to watch Uma on Netflix. Um, I'm watching Uncoupled. You know, consider these titles I'm listing as kind of recommendations, especially that last one I just mentioned, uh, Uncoupled with Neil Patrick Harris is a wonderful series for anyone that is, uh, you know, for anyone, honestly. And then, I wanted to mention that uh, we're posting our quick hits on TikTok now. I do have just one up uh, and I'll edit the others when I get to it. But once I do, I think that that is something fun that I enjoy creating. And if you all enjoy it as well, then you can, for, you can expect them to keep hitting your socials. And you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Check out my band at Cablebox underscore music and Cablebox Music on Twitter and Instagram, respectively. We dropped our first song. We're officially a band. I was just going to shout out the song's title is Wish. It is lovely. Y'all all need to play it. Add it to your playlist. Um, Brandon's an, an amazing drummer. I had the opportunity to go check him out live in the bands. Uh, unfortunately, it was their last like live performance for the time being. Um, but I heard Wish and it was as beautiful as, as it is now on uh, available on Spotify and where you listen to music. So, Brandon, kudos to you. You are a multifaceted king in all respects. And why are you so kind? Because I don't know how to take that. Um, but yeah, we are dropping the full album eventually, so just be patient with us. Follow us on there, and please stream Wish as much as you can. It's really, it really means a lot to us. For myself, for Noah Guzman, this has been Block Devices. We'll catch you guys next time.